Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk to Laura Sacconi and Tali Matityahu, co-founders of Blink, a voice-first blind speed dating app that helps people build meaningful connections based on genuine compatibility. Both of them say they are obsessed with the psychology behind how people connect and how technology can help people find and build strong relationships. So we are excited to hear the story of how they come up with this idea, what they've discovered so far about relationships and dating, and what inspires them as entrepreneurs. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. So welcome, Laura and Tali. We're so glad you could be with us today. Hello, this is Laura. Hello, I'm Tali. So I always like to start out with people allowing them to give us the 30-second elevator pitch about Blink, and maybe as well as your podcast, Date in a Blink. Tell us a little bit about those. Our app is, like you said, a voice first speed dating app for people who want to build relationships that last. And we do that using real-time communication and the power of voice. Uh, in terms of our podcast, Date in a Blink, for folks who want to try going on a first date with a total stranger on a podcast, we offer the chance to do that and kind of emulate our app process. And for season two, we'll actually be bringing on dating experts to help people learn healthy dating habits, because that's something that we think everyone can benefit from. And so we'll be using our dates as a learning tool for season two. That's awesome. Awesome. So how did the two of you meet? And how did you come up with this idea for an app? Holly and I actually met like all good friends these days meet uh, through the internet um, and actually through a dog mom Instagram group. Uh, both of us have black and tan Shibas. And I remember when I first got my pup, I created an Instagram account for her. And I literally went to BuzzFeed and I said, top 10 Shiba accounts to follow. And I actually found Tali's account that way. Found her and a few other people on Instagram. And then uh, her content just absolutely made me laugh every single time I saw it. And so it sounds so creepy to say, but I essentially like slid into her DMs and would just like cackle at every single thing that she put together. And I was like, oh, well, she's got, you know, however many thousands of followers, she's never going to see my message and reply. Uh, and then she did. She was an actual human on the other end who was a nice, normal human being. And then uh, we both actually started living on the East Coast. And then both of us moved out to Los Angeles around the same time a couple of years ago. And so we're like, you know what? East Coasters move West. We have dogs that uh, get along with each other. Let's, you know, let's be our support circle as we move to this new city at the same time. And our friendship really just blossomed from there. And now I'll kick it over to Tali for the origin story of uh, where Blink came from. You know, Blink is, like we said, a voice first speed dating app, but the core mission is to help people connect and find more compatible partners. And, you know, we started wondering how can we do that? And it really brought me back to an experience I had at a blackout restaurant where I had the chance to get to know people in total darkness, having no idea what they looked like. And we had a really beautiful conversation and beautiful connection. And when the dinner ended and I saw them for the first time, I realized that had I seen them beforehand, I, I would have written them off and assumed we didn't have anything in common. And so we started thinking, how can we leverage this kind of idea of, you know, our connection to someone, you know, is being colored by our perception of them based on appearances. How can we remove that factor from the equation? And we realized that voice is a really powerful way to do that because, you know, we learn so much about someone through voice, there's intonation, there's emotion, there's an intimacy. And so we really uh, wanted to leverage that, especially with the rise of kind of the voice revolution with apps like Clubhouse. 
And so we wanted to bring that to people through a dating app. We also have ideas for live events. The idea originally was actually supposed to be a live event concept, but COVID kind of turned that on its head. But we're really excited to be doing it as an app because it's far more scalable and can reach more people much faster. So I've never even heard of a blackout restaurant. Is, is it based on the same idea that people go and meet each other without actually seeing each other? Or is that just a, like a one-time kind of thing? So it, the uh, blackout restaurant that I ate at, I think there are maybe 14 in the world last I checked, but the one that I ate at was at a center for the deaf and the blind. It was a nonprofit cultural center. And the idea there was to help people understand what is it like to go through life, you know, with visual impairments. And I will tell you, try eating, like put a blindfold on and try eating a totally trippy experience to try to figure out where your food is on the plate and find your cup and, you know, bring a fork up to your mouth with actual food on it. That was the premise of, of the restaurant that I went to, but it had this added benefit of, you know, being seated at a communal table and you had the option to, to talk to your table mates and you had the option not to. And I'm really glad that we spoke to our table mates and, and had this connection and had this kind of experience of, of getting to know someone without having any idea what they looked like, what they were wearing, how tall they were, what their skin color was. It was really incredible. Right. That's fascinating because obviously their mission is not to connect people in the same way you have, but you came up with that DIA because you had that experience. That's great. Now, I know that you've done a lot of research about successful relationships and psychology around relationships. And so can you tell me a little bit about the research you've done and how this, this idea of talking to someone first makes so much sense in light of what you've learned about how people develop a relationship? Yes, there are so many really incredible studies that have been done over the last uh, 30 years, really, on how people date, mate, and relate to each other. Uh, but there's a lot of really nice uh, peer-reviewed studies that exist. And so that's really what we dug into is a, a variety of different meta-analyses of different relationships and what is a better indicator for what's going to be a strong relationship. And there's a few things that really stand out for us. So one of the things is if you think about how you relate to people, uh, a lot of the modern dating apps really focus on the visual. And one of the interesting things is about half of the population, you need to have the physical connection first in order to kind of continue through the process. Um, but it's often actually not relatable to long-term success of the relationship. And then for the other half of the population, you need to have an emotional connection before you want to continue the conversation. And so that's kind of the first thing is about uh, what are modern dating apps doing currently in the experience that kind of help you meet more people uh, in a way that is really easy to do so. And in that you kind of lose a lot of the spirit of what makes dating a fun and deeply human experience. And so that's one of the interesting things is, okay, well, how much do visuals actually tell you about a person, especially if it's a curated profile, if someone's made up in their profile, you know, how are people relating and engaging with that? And so one of the interesting things that we dug into a little bit further is uh, it goes a little bit more into the child psychology of it. And it talks about, you know, texting between parents and children and what's the relationship there and how does that evolve and develop? And so one of the things that uh, are some of the more recent studies are coming out to show what the impact is on children being able to hear their parents' voices. And this is something that I think there's starting to be more studies on this as well in terms of what is it like when you're engaging with someone on a peer-to-peer -peer relationship when you're texting with somebody first. And some of the things that they find is that it's extremely difficult. You can't tell tone through text. Uh, you can also, if you're looking at something that's curated, you read it with whatever preconceived notion it is that you have in the back of your mind, as opposed to what that person might actually be intending. Uh, and so there's 
a layer that's removed from the process of actually getting to know somebody or understanding somebody's intent that can lead to a lot of miscommunications. And then beyond that, uh, there's also a lot of studies about first impressions and how long does it actually take to get to know somebody. And so there's some places that say within, you know, 27 seconds of first meeting someone, you've already established how you feel about that person. There are other ones that say within four minutes, you really know enough about that person to determine whether you want to uh, continue engaging with them or not. The science kind of goes on and on about, you know, how you make initial assumptions about people. Uh, it then continues to talk about the visual bias and how there's actually no correlation to whether you think you like somebody to whether you're actually going to be with that person long-term. It has a lot more to do with kind of your core value system. That's the thing that can kind of glue people together in the long-term. And then there's, there's so much. I could, I could go on for a while about all the different science behind dating, mating, and relating. I think I'd love for you to give me an example from a couple that you maybe worked with or you had on your podcast, maybe a success story or someone who might have had a similar experience that Telly did that had a conversation and then actually wouldn't have probably never like visually checked that or swiped on that person, but then like actually ended up having a, a good relationship if you have one. The other thing I would love to have you talk about a little bit is I know that you said, Laura, that you used some Cornell resources to do some of this research. So it'd be lovely to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we had 17 couples for our season one of our podcast and 50% of them had matches, which was really wonderful. Every single one of them said they would repeat the experience and people really liked that there was no visual. They liked that they were able to have real conversations. And of those who matched, there's one in particular that's coming to mind. And I don't mind sharing the names because, you know, they, they've already told us whether or not they want us to use aliases. So we're, we're comfortable talking about them. Laureen and Ben had a really incredible conversation. Uh, I know I, I was the one who hosted that date and I was on the mute button, which was very wonderful because I was laughing throughout their date. It was great. And I actually think uh, we connected with Laureen after and, and Laura, I think you actually connected with her without me as well. And it sounds like they went on several in real life kind of dates afterwards. They had a really great connection. I think they're still friends. I don't know if they're still in a romantic relationship, but at Blink, we think that that's actually pretty successful too, because, you know, we know there are billions of people on the planet. Not everyone is, is meant to be our, our penguin. And so even being able to come out of a date and uh, very quickly determine whether or not you want to continue to an in real life date, and then determine whether or not you want to continue with a romantic relationship, that's kind of the normal course of things. And we're really happy that we were able to achieve that through the podcast for several of our daters. And Laura, do you have anything to add to that? Or did you want to talk a bit about how, what you, what resources you might've used at Cornell? I would love to talk about some of the resources that I've used. The biggest one, honestly, has been the alumni access to JSTOR and some other online databases. It's really hard to get access to those once you've graduated uh, from outside of the Cornell network. And so that's actually one of the biggest things that I use and I use it pretty regularly because one of the thing, things that's important to us is making sure that we have really well-reviewed studies that help guide how we build our app and that we're looking into these different things. And it's not just, oh, I have a gut feeling that I think something might work, but you know, hey, what is the science action saying about the power of voice? What's science saying about how people connect with each other? And so it's been really great to be able to get that access in a way that is really easy. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to um, kind of jump through hoops in order to get some access. Cause I know some of these, you can get access through a public library. Um, but I've always had a really difficult time doing that. And so being able to just log in using my NetID has been really lovely from that perspective. 
On top of that, one of the other really great resources is actually there's the entrepreneurship listserv, which is how I found out about this podcast. And it's been a space where we've recruited, we actually have had a few people from Cornell come on our podcast because we've done some recruiting uh, for our initial proof of concept. And there's also some people that we've been in contact with for kind of a variety of different things. Like I just posted something to the listserv. I think uh, I schedule send it. So it's going to be sending out in about eight minutes, uh, but looking for you know people to join our team, people to join our wait list, people to hop on our podcast with us. So there's just been a lot of solicitation that we've done from the Cornell in the Cornell community, which has been really great. Have either of you used this in your own personal relationship to try to find someone or are you all happily partnered up? Have you used other kinds of dating apps personally? I do not mind talking about it. Both Laura and I have partners and unfortunately are not using Blink to find partners at this particular moment. I know Laura actually met her partner on another dating app. This was pre-Blink. So unfortunately, she didn't have the chance to use Blink to find her wonderful partner. Um, Laura, I'll kick it over to you to share more about your experience meeting Gustavo. Yeah. So my partner and I met on a dating app. One of the most interesting things to me about working on Blink is that I almost swiped away my partner. And it's not because his profile was particularly bad. It was a mediocre profile. It was interesting what he wrote, but his photos weren't that great. And so I think today, like, you know, we've been together for six years. We own a house together. We have a dog together. We've traveled to multiple continents together. You know, I have never met someone that I've been more compatible with. And so I just felt like, why is it that we're using these dating apps and it's so easy to swipe somebody away and that person can be an incredible match for you and you have no idea. And then you're saying yes to people that you actually are very poorly compatible with. And that's because who you are as a curated profile, who you are as, you know, the the carefully selected photos or the filters, that doesn't really accurately represent who you are. And daters really want to portray themselves better. And people are having a really hard time. You know, most people aren't in a marketing profession. Most people don't know how to get across who they truly are in a profile. That's because how can you take a 3D person and boil them down into the 2D version of themselves, you know, essentially a baseball card and get all the information that you need to know, hey, this is going to be a great connection. But one really beautiful thing about voice and connecting that way is that you can tell so much. uh, And as humans, we're trained, for those of us who are hearing, we're trained to be able to understand the nuance in other people's voices and the warmth of it, the depth of it, Uh, how interested they are in the conversation. You can tell so much just by engaging with somebody that you'd never get, even if you're swiping on, you know, a thousand profiles, you know, in a day. That's fascinating. So you almost swiped away your partner. And perhaps if you had had Blink, we were able to talk to him. So let's talk a little bit about how, and I don't know if you two are solely focused on this business or if you have some other things going on in your life as well, but how you feel like you've come to the point where you want to be an entrepreneur and start a business rather than only working for another company. Why do you think that that's part of who you are? Yeah, I'll go first. So I, both Laura and I have a lot uh, going on beyond Blink. Unfortunately, we're working our day job still, but we're hoping to one day be able to take Blink full time. But in terms of how I got to this point where I decided kind of entrepreneurship is the path I want, I want to build something of my own. You know, I grew up with immigrant parents and I always saw them hustling. My dad is self-employed. And I think that really instilled in me this idea that you can build your own world if you want to, if you're willing to put in the work and it's just a matter of deciding what it is that you want to build. And, you know, ever since I, I had that experience at this blackout restaurant, 
and realized how quickly people write each other off based on appearances. I've been sort of noodling over how can we, you know, help people make better connections and is this an experience that can help define kind of a an opportunity? And, and I'm so excited to be able to do that with Blink, both in the dating context, which is what we're working on now, but also in the future in other contexts and in other verticals. So it's just a, a personal passion of mine that's kind of a driving force in terms of entrepreneurship, but also this particular concept of helping people make more authentic connections based on true compatibility. And Laura, I'll, I'll kick it over to you to share more about your journey to, to working on Blink and entrepreneurship in general. I hadn't really known anyone who had started their own business. I come from a line of mostly blue collar workers. My parents met as letter carriers in the post office. So I kind of come from uh, humble beginnings on, on that front. And one of the interesting things for me is I always really looked up to people that owned certain businesses. And I also felt very strongly that I did not like the way that I see people running businesses. I think a lot of people are exploiting their labor. I think a lot of people are not really caring about their employee. I'm really pro, you know, labor rights and everything that allows people to have a really good uh, work-life balance. And so something that I've always wanted to do is I, I always said to myself, I want to be able to create a business that is going to show people that you don't have to put profits over people and that you can have a really profitable business while still caring about, you know, people and the planet and the world in which you live while still putting good things out into the world. You know, I don't believe that capitalism is inherently evil, but I think that there are people who do things that are very negative in the world and that are very exploitive. And I, I don't like that. And so I always wanted to do something and I wanted to build the type of company that I wanted to be a part of. And I'd always kind of sat on this idea but I think a, a struggle that a lot of people who don't know other entrepreneurs, especially in the tech and startup space, you don't know where to start. You don't know how to start. And so one of the really beautiful things for me is I had been sitting on this idea of, you know, how do I want to build a company? I just don't know what to build. And then, uh, you know, Tali comes along and has this idea for Blink Date, and she's already started to work on it. And then we ended up working on it together. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the thing that I want to work on because Tali and I are in a lot of alignment in terms of the type of company we want to build. I was like, in terms of what I want to do, I want to make sure I work with someone who cares about people as much as I do, who cares about our impact on the world as much as I do. And Tali and I really share that. And so it's a really beautiful thing. I know that I don't have to stop myself from saying, you know, I think this is exploitive, or I think that this is and will have a negative impact because I know that Tali is either going to also bring that up first or that she's going to say, oh, you're right. And we're going to kind of address things from that way. So I, I think a lot of times just getting started is the hardest thing. And so it's really fun to be able to find people who are like, hey, I don't know how to start this either, uh, but we're going to learn together and scour kind of the depths of the internet <laughs> to figure out how we can you know, find people and make connections and actually start building something. So that kind of leads into the next question about your personal mission statement. But before we go to that, I wanted to just ask if either of you now, Tully, I know you went to Columbia, is that correct? Laura, you went to Cornell. But were there any things you studied in school that helped you in terms of becoming an entrepreneur? Or did you study something completely different? So I did applied economics and management. I think that's still the title of the program. And I specialize in environmental and resource economics. One of my favorite classes ever, I still talk about it, was I think it was Social Entrepreneurs, Innovators, and Problem Solvers by Anke Wessels. 
I don't know if she's still on campus. I think she still is. She is still here. Yep. One of my favorite professors. Every once in a while, I reach out to her. I haven't in, in the last couple of years, but social entrepreneurship, that was kind of my first introduction to it and learning about the triple bottom line and a bunch of really incredible people in the world who were doing some really beautiful things while still being able to have a positive impact on the world. That was one of the best classes I, I ever took. Yeah. So I went to undergrad and law school in New York and, you know, I studied history, Spanish, and then law school. And I would say all of those things, of course, defined, you know, part of my experience and my skill set. But I think what really kind of colored it more was living and working in New York. I had so many opportunities, so many different internships, so many different jobs, and just trying so many things, meeting different people, hearing about their experiences. I think being part of that kind of pulse of, of New York from, you know, my freshman year of college onwards, that's what sort of kind of colored my, my skill set and my path more than the actual education. Not to say that it wasn't valuable. It certainly was. But I think that's one of the perks of going to school in a place like New York City. You talked a little bit, Laura, about your mission of the company, but can you tell me a little bit, both of you, maybe about your, if you have a personal mission statement? Yeah, it's, I, I don't necessarily have like a, a direct mission statement per se, um, but it's really that I care about systemic change. I think that there's a lot that individuals can do, but I always like to pull back and say, is the onus on the individual to make the change and be the change that they want to see in the world? when essentially the air around us has a lot of systemic biases that exist that really disenfranchise a lot of people. And so my mission statement is how can I pull back and create systemic change and involve the right people from the beginning so that we build a more inclusive world whereby everybody is having more of an equitable playing field as opposed to essentially creating systems that really rely on individuals to opt in to a better experience. Yeah, it's really about kind of thinking, how can we actually change things systemically? I don't want people to actively think, oh, I'm challenging my biases. Oh, I'm challenging my assumptions. Because the second you start doing that, people start getting very defensive because you're challenging something that's a deeply held unconscious bias. And it's really hard to have something unconscious become conscious. And so what I want to see is how can we have a collective shift as humanity, as a, as a human race, into a type of future where the systems are actually fair and equitable. So I think maybe New York has rubbed off on me more than I realized because what's coming to mind is if you see something, say something, those, those subway warning signs. And I think it's kind of actually going to a lot of what Laura was saying. You know, if you see something that's wrong, whose responsibility is it to do something? And, you know, growing up in kind of two worlds with a foot in my, you know, parents' immigrant world and my world as a, somebody being raised as an American, you know, you see a lot of things that you might not agree with and a lot of things that you think might be broken, a lot of systems. And it's easy to say, it's not my job to fix them. But I am a very action-oriented person who likes kind of breaking down problems and trying to solve them. And so I think the idea of if you see something, say something applies beyond just, you know, a bag on the subway sitting alone um, and really just to things in the world. I see something that's that's wrong. I want to be able to take action and, and fix it and not just say, this isn't my problem. So I think that's, that's my personal mission statement to do things when I see things that I think are amiss. So now I'd like to move a little bit into some questions that tell us a little bit more about each of you and what makes you tick, because I feel like it's always interesting to find out what entrepreneurs do when they're not working, even though we know that entrepreneurs are kind of always working, but you know that when you have a little bit of time to like do something else, what do you do? So Laura, let's start with you. So tell me about the best 
piece of advice that you've ever been given or perhaps the worst piece of advice or one of each? I would actually love to share the worst advice I've been given. And I think Tali has some pretty good best advice. So worst advice I've been given, people have told me a lot, especially early in my career, don't stir the pot, stay in your lane, keep your head down. And I don't think that that's particularly helpful advice. I think that you need to kind of raise your hand and opt into things. I, I, I hate the phrase lean in, but it's the most applicable thing that I can think about, which is it's okay to be a little bit controversial, especially if you're seeing something that you don't agree with and you think that there's something wrong with it. I've actually had a lot of success doing that. I worked at a company where I didn't like that we were environmental focused company, but we had a lot of really poor sustainability practices. So I said something about it and then we created a committee about it with some of my colleagues. And then we ultimately transitioned to things that were better for the company, not just in terms of being more sustainable, but it was also better for our bottom line. And so that's one of the things that I, I think that's terrible advice. It's okay to stir the pot. It's okay to speak up and say something. And also recognizing that oftentimes, especially if you're a woman and especially if you're a person of color, there's a lot of things that can happen when you do raise your hand and stir the pot. And so you need to think in certain moments. I think Shonda Rhimes says the, the if you're the first only different person in a room, there's a certain weight that's on your shoulders and you can choose to bear that burden or not. And it's up to you whether you want to opt in or not. And if you're the type of person who wants to opt in, it is important to be able to kind of step up into stirring the pot, raising your hand, calling things out and trying to ultimately make the world a better place to pave the way for the people who come behind you. And also to recognize that it's, a, it's absolutely okay to say, I don't want to be that person and I don't want to bear that burden. But for people like me, I think stirring the pot is kind of a, a rite of passage. And I'd love to hear Tali's best advice. The advice that comes to mind, so in, in law school, I had an, a really incredible professor and she had a child during law school and she was, I think, a student at Harvard, so very, you know, heavy uh, workload in addition to, to raising a young child. And somebody asked her, you know, when's a good time to do these sorts of things, you know, whether it's to have a child or take some other big life leap. And she said, there's never a good time. You just have to take the leap. And I think that applies whether it's having children, but also to other things like building a company. There's never a good time to start, you know, splitting yourself from your day job or quit your day job unless, you know, you have the, the financial stability to do it, to just take the leap, quit, you know, and follow your own path. There's potentially never a good time. And so you just have to dive in and it might mean doing it slowly and building, you know, gradually and potentially doing it alone sometimes because you don't have someone to do it with. But, you know, I didn't know Laura was going to come on this journey with me when I started it. And I'm so thankful she is. But had I never started, I never would have found out that she was going to come on the journey with me. And so sometimes you just need to dive in and realize that, you know, if you wait for a good time, you're going to be waiting forever. So, so take the leap and, and trust that everything else will fall into place. And to be honest, I think the other piece of that is if it doesn't work out, that's also a success in and of itself. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of failure because you learn a lot in the process and it might take you to something else afterwards. So just take the leap knowing that one way or another, whether it's a failure or a success or it grows into something else, it will work out. So tell me about some of the tools that you guys use that make your life easier, either um, either other apps or digital tools or actual physical things that you use every day that you have found to really help you in, in any part of your life. Well, I'll start with, I mean, both Laura and I have dogs. So dogs are a really great way to reduce stress. Uh, just give a nice little hug from your furry loved ones. Um, but also in terms of actual tools, I am a, a very, what's a good word, devout user of tools like Asana, uh, reminders on the Apple system, monday.com. Right now we're using Asana, but I've used all of these tools 
and I am obsessed with them. They make doing things a lot easier because you can just write down what you need to do when you need to do it by and totally forget about it, which when you're context switching and juggling lots of different things, that's super helpful because you're not using your active memory space for everything, which can be super overwhelming. And so I'm a big proponent of using a task management tool to help break down tasks and stay on top of things. Now I say that knowing not everyone is motivated by to-do lists, but I would encourage folks who might be more rebellious if you know I'm thinking about it in terms of Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies to find ways that motivate them to stay on top of things. And so for me, it's that to-do list. For other people, it might be having an accountability partner. So if you do have someone you're working with, Telling them what you expect yourself to do in a given week can be a really great tool. And so finding a way in a system or a tool, there are also really great accountability apps to stay on top of things, I think is a really helpful way, especially when you're juggling a lot at once. And Laura, I don't know if you have any other tips or or apps or suggestions. Thanks for our simple. uh, So I love Asana because of Tali, but the calendar app is like chef's kiss for me. I use all uh, Google platforms. So I have my personal calendar, my Blink calendar. I also have my day job calendar all in one place. And it makes it very easy for me to keep things organized. So you guys are both, what would you call it? Are you obligers? Are you um, in Gretchen Rubin's tendencies? Have you done your little? I am a questioner, actually. (laughs) So I question everything, which I think, you know, I I also have portions of other tendencies, but I, I question everything. If somebody tells me to jump, I say how high. If somebody tells me to do something a certain way, I start wondering, is that really the best way to do it? So yeah, I guess I don't really fall into, you know, one of the traditional accountability methods beyond, you know, give me a good reason to do it and I'll do it. I'm a rebel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very much a rebel. I'm very anti-establishment. So I'm the opposite. Someone tells me to jump and I say, you jump. (laughs) I'm not jumping because you told me I'm not going to do it now. But I've learned that that's not the most helpful. One thing that I've learned also motivates me is if I know where someone's coming from. So for example, uh, getting up to speed and using Asana was really hard for me. But now that we use it all the time, I love it. I don't view it as, oh, someone's telling me what to do, but rather it's more of the accountability side of things. Like I have an accountability buddy. I can track everything. I recognize the benefit of not having to bear the mental burden of remembering all the things I need to do. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a convert now. Still rebellious though. <laughs> well, you can't, you can't change your tendency, but you know, you just have to learn to deal with it, I think. So tell me a little bit about what your routine is in the day. So I'd love to know like what you do first thing in the morning. I'll tackle this one first. My days, I think, are a little less structured than I would like them to be. I would love to say that I wake up in the morning and I do the same thing every single day. That is not true for me. I pretty much uh, roll out of bed depending on what needs to get done. If I have to walk my dog in the morning, I wake up a half an hour before my first meeting. If I do not have to walk my dog immediately in the morning or if I'm switching with my partner, uh, I wake up generally five to 10 minutes before the meeting. And I know that that's I hope that's helpful for people to hear. I feel like I was very discouraged from wanting to enter entrepreneurship because I was like, oh no, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. and you know, drink an egg or whatever it was that people say that they do at a certain time in the morning. Uh, and I am much more of a, I'm not, a, I'm not an early bird. I'm not a night owl. I am like a middle day bear. Uh, I am very productive in middle of the day, middle of the afternoon, but I am not good at waking up early. I am not good at staying up super, super late. Uh, although I, I do stay up fairly late to, to work on certain things. So yeah, the first thing I do in the morning is I wake up, I stretch, I check my phone, go, all right, what's happening today? Uh, And then brush my teeth. Uh, I cannot start my day without brushing my teeth. I'd say that's the one thing that I I have to do before anything else gets done. So I also am not a morning person. So I prefer to wake up um, 
shortly before I need to. And when I do, I usually do like a short Peloton ride of maybe 20, 30 minutes and then like 10 to 15 minutes of yoga. I didn't used to do this, but I found that if I didn't do workouts in the morning, then I would not do it at all. And so it was a really great routine to start doing because it helps me feel accomplished. And from there, I would kind of go about whatever it is that I have in the morning, usually have a meeting by noon, whether it's a blink meeting or a day job meeting. So getting all that done, which I know noon sounds really late, but getting that done and eating something before my first meetings is usually the goal. So what is one thing that you guys would do if you had found yourself with 15 minutes of free time? Like if I let you out of this interview earlier than you thought with 15 minutes. In an ideal world, I would just go snuggle my dogs. Um, but I know in actuality, I'd probably check my email. <laughs> I'm an inbox zero, so it helps me, you know, if I see the zero, then it just brings me comfort. And so in 15 minutes, it's a really great way for me to say, oh, I had, you know, 15 emails. Now I have zero. And so by the end of that, I do feel accomplished. I know it's probably not the best way to spend my 15 minutes though. No judgment. How about you, Laura? Yeah, I think for me, when I have 15 minutes of free time. It depends on how packed my day is. I will usually do something that has nothing to do with the screen. So whether it's playing with my dog or talking to my partner or making a very quick lunch for myself, doing anything that is just not looking at my screen, whether it's my phone or my laptop, because I um, I have a, a semi-annoying eye condition where if I stare at screens for too long, I can get really bad headaches from it. And so those 15 minutes can be really important for me to give my eyes a little bit of a rest. Uh, and then, cause like the room will start spinning for me and it, it's really uncomfortable. So yeah, anything that is not screen related and 15 minutes isn't quite enough to get into anything that's really more hobby related, but it is a good time for me to just kind of sit. And I am not a person who meditates, but I do kind of like walking meditations kind of a thing. What is one thing that most people would be surprised to find out about you? Uh, I don't know if this would actually surprise people who know me, but for people who are just meeting me, I have a weird fascination with small critters. So I have squirrel Adirondack chair in my backyard, and I also love watching subway rats. I just, I don't know. I feel like there's probably little communities, just like there's a Chelsea neighborhood and Upper West Side. Like I feel like there are little communities of rats in New York City. And they all probably have different kind of neighborhood vibes. And so I know it's a very strange thing to think about or talk about, but I think people might be weirded out by the fact that I'm actually really into watching the subway rat and, you know, squirrel communities. Squirrels are a little cuter. So people might be less weirded out by that. Right. So you have a squirrel a Adirondack chair that a squirrel can sit in and eat something yes. from or whatever. That is it. I also have a picnic table and a swing. <laughs> That's awesome. It's amazing. They spark joy. They spark a lot of joy. Right, exactly. How about you, Laura? I think something that people would be surprised to learn about me, especially because we can't really do this a lot during the pandemic, is I actually used to be on a performance salsa team. And so I used to do a lot of salsa dancing. And so a lot of people do not know that about me. And there's not a lot of opportunities, especially during the pandemic. I'm not going to go dance with some strangers. Right. Very cool. Did you do any of that at Cornell? Because there are some like dance things at Cornell. I did. Yeah. Um, I was in Cuba Libre for a little while. And then uh, I think that went off campus for a bit. And then when that ended was around the time that I was getting ready to graduate. I was in like seven clubs on campus. I did a lot when I was there. I, I had too much fun. I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was like, I want to do all the things. I actually met one of my uh, closest friends who's also an entrepreneur uh, through SEA, was it Sustainability Enterprise Association. I think that's the name of it. 
I don't know if they're still around, but uh, I met her. She became my first friend ever at Cornell, and now she's one of my best friends. She lives down in Irvine. We're, we're on the West Coast in the LA area together. I'm always grateful to Cornell for being able to allow me to make that type of connection. Yeah. Well, there are, there are like, I don't know, more than a thousand student clubs or something. There's just a club for everything, probably even for people who like squirrels in Adirondack chairs. There might be a club for that. I wish I could have joined it. <laughs> okay. So talk a bit about what books are you reading or what books do you generally read? And I know you probably don't have a lot of spare time to do any reading, but if you did, what kinds of books would you be reading? So I read a variety of different books. So I actually... I listen to all my books. Again, the eye condition I was mentioning earlier makes reading very hard for me. Uh, so I listen to all my books and I am so grateful that people are really on the audiobook bandwagon these days. And so I will listen to everything from nonfiction to fiction. And so one of the most recent nonfiction books that I've been reading, and I'm just getting the title of it right now, uh, is Do Nothing. That's one of the books that I'm reading right now. And one of the ones that I just finished is Effortless. Uh, so those are two books that are kind of going on for me, but one that I just finished and one that I'm about to start doing. But I listen to them at 2x speed while I fold laundry. So I actually do quite a bit of reading. That's awesome. That's a great idea. I never thought about that. And how about you, Tully? I am very slow at reading right now because I don't have a ton of time, but I've been reading over the past couple months, A Promised Land by Barack Obama. It's been sitting on my nightstand for a little while. It's taking me longer than I'd like, but it's been kind of reinvigorating to kind of remember what, you know, those days were like, how many years ago now, 10 plus years ago. Um, so it's actually pretty inspiring to, to read about a story. And it's also you know, I, I had read um, Michelle Obama's book or I listened to it actually to Laura's point about listening to books on my drive cross country from New York to LA when we first moved out there. And I remember her story about leaving law and kind of the, the journey of that. And as a recovering lawyer myself, you know, it's always really lovely to hear that story. And so I'm getting a little taste of that again through Barack Obama's perspective. And so it's been a really great book to read and I'm really enjoying it. It sounds like there are Lots of people that you admire, but one of the questions I had was, is there a business person or someone entrepreneurial or someone in, in some kind of realm, it doesn't necessarily have to be a business person, that you really admire? Yes. I really appreciate Sarah Blakely and Shonda Rhimes. Those are kind of the two that come to mind immediately for me. Sarah Blakely, I remember seeing her at the Massachusetts Conference for Women and I just remember her telling her story about essentially selling fax machines door to door. And I thought it was a wild initial story on how she kind of got her start in entrepreneurship and then continued on her journey down to, uh, you know, how she got a meeting at Nordstrom. I just, I think it's a really incredible journey. And then Shonda Rhimes is someone I mentioned earlier about being the first only different. And I think that those are just two really incredible women who have made really incredible changes in the world in a way without they don't have to compromise who they are as human beings. They don't need to compromise how they want to show up in the world. So those are the, the two that I would choose. And I, I might've stolen them from Tali too. <laughs> Folks might not be able to see my expression, but I, I was actually a little surprised. Laura said Sarah Blakely, not surprised because she's, she's wonderful, but surprised because that was also mine. And I, just to add a couple of things that I found really impressive about her story is, you know, like Laura was saying, she was selling fax machines while she was building Spanx. And one of the things that she was doing at the time was filing a patent for, you know, the, the fabrics and the combination of, of the product she was building. And she's not a lawyer. She was doing this, you know, in her nights and weekends, she was going to the library researching how to file a patent, what needs to be included, the, the science behind all the things she was doing. I don't know if that's even the right word for, for fabrics. 
And it's just so impressive. Patents, for those who don't know, are really, really complicated. And somebody without any experience doing it, figuring out how to do it, getting a patent and starting to manufacture a product, like her story is just incredible. And it's so inspiring. And it's a great reminder of what I was saying earlier. There's not a great time to start a business. You might not be in a financial position. You might not have a ton of time, but sometimes you just got to put in that grunt work and it pays off. And she just, you know, had, I don't remember exactly the parameters of the deal that she, she just sold a portion of her business. And she also gave back to her employees by providing like a really beautiful, you know, trip and funds for people to go on a trip. And that was also a great reminder of how you can be really empathetic as a leader and build a really wonderful company that people love working for. And so she's just a constant source of inspiration throughout her entrepreneurial journey. And it it definitely has kind of been a a guiding star as we've gone on this journey. And I I hope that one day we can kind of mirror her, her actions one day for for the employees that we bring onto our team. Well, I want to give you time to tell people how to find out more about Blink and how to get involved. But I want to find out before I ask you that, if there's anything that we didn't talk about that you definitely want to include. I think one thing that I want to add is that for me, I never thought I'd go to Cornell ever. I never thought that I would be on this entrepreneurial journey. I didn't think that people like me could do certain things because of, you know, how I grew up and where I grew up. You know, I was planning on dropping out of high school to go to beauty school, except that I had a really kind guidance counselor who said, hey, you are very smart. You should maybe consider some alternate paths ahead of you. So that's also something for me that's a a driving factor in everything that I do. I was so fortunate that I had some really kind people along the way who showed me things that my family wasn't aware of to expand my horizons. And I am always really sad that this is not something that not everybody gets that type of guiding light. And especially a lot of what you look like will indicate who will step in to want to help you, to want to give you a leg up on that journey. And so I recognize there's so much privilege in me being able to say that I had people who saw something in me and who encouraged me to do more with my life. And so I just really want to encourage anyone who's listening, especially if you're from a background that maybe, you know, you're not, you don't look like everybody that's in the C-suite, or maybe you do, but you're from a background where uh, it's just different. You know, the things that you know about are different and you don't think that that might be you, that like, yeah, it can be you. There's a lot of biases and there's a lot of hurdles along the way, but you can you can do that. You can get there. You can do those things uh, so long as you continue to talk to people. And you're going to come across a lot more people who are going to discourage you than they are going to help you on that journey. But when you find those people who do encourage you, you want to hold on to them and hold on to the, the positive feelings that you get from that relationship and really nurture that to see how it can grow. So I don't know. I just, I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot that goes against people on their entrepreneurial journeys and it can be really hard. It can be really lonely. It can be really tough, Uh, but definitely find people, especially those who have a similar background to you, those who look like you, those who have done it before. And like, those are the people that you want to start talking to. So that's the one thing that I would just want to add to people and encourage them as they're listening. Yeah, that's great to hear. That's great advice and really inspirational. No, I would just echo what Laura was saying. In terms of opportunities, you know, carve your own path. Don't follow the advice of don't shake the boat, stir that pot, do it whenever it is that you feel comfortable doing it. There will never be a good time. So just dive right in. And just a final note, I'm really thankful to have had this opportunity to share our stories with you. So thank you to you would be one last thing I'd want to throw in. 
So tell us a little bit more about how people can find out more about Blink and how to sign up or how to get involved. Folks can find us uh, at our website, www.theblinkdate.com or on social media at The Blink Date on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. Um, and we also have our podcast, which is Date in a Blink. And we're on social for that at Date in a Blink. Our app will be coming out very soon. We're sorting out some you know, app store approval items. And so we're hoping if folks want to give the app a shot, they can also download it very soon, maybe by the time this episode comes out. But if not, they can always find us at our website and join the wait list. And if folks want to reach out uh, individually about our journeys, you know, I can be reached on LinkedIn. And I think Laura can as well. I hope it's okay, Laura. I volunteered you for that. Thank you so much, Laura and Telly, for visiting with us today at Startup Cornell. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu.